This is an ABC podcast. Hello, it's Natasha Mitchell with Science Friction and I've got an absolute global superstar of science fiction on the show today. A special encounter between the deep past and the deep future, whether it be real or imagined. Science fiction, of course, depending on the work, I I will play fast and loose with with the rules of the universe. (laughs) You know, your job is to say you know, here are the facts, look how neat this is. Like, look at these amazing things that we have learned. I see my job as um, something more akin to impressionism. Becky Chambers just won her second Hugo Award, the world's most prestigious sci-fi award for her novella, A Psalm for the Wild Built, part of her Monk and Robot series of what you'd probably describe as hopeful sci-fi. And archaeologist Dr Emma Wren is one of the ABC's top five scientists this year. So this is the ABC's media residency program for five rising stars in science with a passion for communicating their work. Emma is also a really talented cartoonist and uh, I wanted to get her and Becky Chambers together in conversation. But first, let's meet Emma. Hey, Emma. Thanks for joining me. (laughs) Thanks, Natasha. So what do you love so much about time travel? It was subtle at first. It's probably, you know, growing up watching Back to the Future and Horrible Histories and, you know, liked ancient Greece and ancient Rome in primary school. But it probably wasn't until I got to high school Finding stories that I like and realising that, yeah, a lot of them involved the past or sometimes the future. For sci-fi as well as for history, it's that notion of visiting a different world. It's the fact that, you know, with the distance between us and, you know, ancient Greece or the Neolithic uh, or sometime in the past is so vast that it might as well be looking you know, thousands of years into the future, except we we know that it happened and that it in some way has formed how we got to where we are. So there's definitely that still that element, though, of this is so different from my present. So I guess there's a little bit of an escapist element to it, mm-hmm. but it also kind of helps you understand where we are as well. Yeah. I think the ultimate escapism for me as a kid was climbing into the the TARDIS with Doctor Who, Tom Baker. (laughs) Tom Baker was my Doctor Who, thank you very much. (laughs) The only Doctor Who I'll ever have eyes for. And and being transported in that TARDIS into other times and places. So my Doctor is David Tennant, uh, but I will say uh, Christopher Eccleston, also very good. And my dad's favourite is Tom Baker as well. And, you know, got to love the... Gen X kid. (laughs) Yeah, you got to appreciate the impractically long scarf. (laughs) As an archaeologist then, you now spend your life getting to time travel for a job and in your case, back in time. So where does your work take you into the deep past? So most of my work has been looking at interactions between people and the environments that they live in in the past. So specifically here in Australia. So for my PhD, I was most interested in the last 4,000 years or so because during that time, climate has been fairly similar to the kind of conditions that we have now. So we're looking at, okay, if we've got a similar climate 4,000 years ago, what, what was similar, what was different? And for my project, I was specifically looking at fire in northern Australia because fire is something that 
is very natural. It's a big part of Northern Australian ecosystems. Over the last 4,000 years, has it always been there? Has it changed in the way that it, there's been fire and plants and people interacting? And whether or not we could try and tease apart where people fit into that picture. So given you spend your days, Emma Wren, investigating the deep past, it's very interesting to me that um, one of your other passions is thinking about the deep future. You are truly obsessed with science <laughs> fiction in a, in a good way. What do you especially love about Becky Chambers' work? I really love how it's about people and it doesn't necessarily have to be humans in that case. It could be robots as well as aliens. But it's about the, the connections between them and about what they're feeling rather than being about space explosions um, yeah. or, or cataclysms. So it's very much, it's very character driven, but it's also really optimistic. I have read plenty of dystopian fiction as well. It can be a bit much uh, when you're feeling a little bit bleak or uh, not too hopeful. Or when you're looking out the window and seeing dystopia (laughs) writ large in reality. Yes, when when your world is on fire in one place and and being flooded in others and and people are suffering, you really want to have some hope for the future. And as a scientist, I do want to keep hopeful and think that we are capable of, of deciding whatever kind of future we want. And so sci-fi like Becky's is really great at that than going, we're not stuck. We don't always have to be doing things this way and the future doesn't have to be bleak. Yes, bad things happen, but we'll be okay and we'll look after each other and we can be better. Well, Emma Wren, the good news is that we've brought you and Becky Chambers together. I thought it'd be really interesting to see what a deep past scientist has to ask of a a deep future sci-fi writer. And I'm very excited for this conversation. (laughs) This is going to be great. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. And I'm excited to be talking to you. You grew up around science because both of your parents are space scientists. Were you ever tempted to become a scientist yourself? Not particularly, uh, except for a very brief window when I was about 12 years old and I saw the movie Contact for the first time and was completely obsessed with it. And so there was a period there where I said, I want to be an astronomer. But as I got a little older and realized that while I was good at math, it wasn't a particular passion of mine, that what I really wanted to be was Ellie Arroway, who's the protagonist of that story. I wasn't particularly interested in going into STEM itself unless I could actually meet aliens. So um, I I chose a field in which um, I can almost do that. the closest thing, I think, to being able to to hang out on a beach with aliens is just making up my own. But um, at the same time, it was impossible to grow up in that environment and not absorb a real love for not just space and the universe and and existence as we know it, but for science and the scientific process. Um, And that's something that has indelibly shaped my worldview and that I'm very grateful for. You're known as a writer of solar punk, which kind of looks into positive futures based on sustainability and improving relationships with nature, or even hope punk. So both of these are kind of relatively new genres that are essentially rebellion in the form of optimism. What's your motivation for writing optimistic stories? And was this a conscious choice as a science fiction writer? 
This was a very conscious choice on my part. From the start, from my first novel, um, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, one of the things I commonly hear about my genre is, you know, that it's it's grim, it's dystopian, um, it's not particularly fun. And I will disagree on that. I think that dystopia can be fun is maybe not, not necessarily <laughs> the right word, but engaging certainly some of my favorite stories are on the darker side of things. But I think that we have to have a counterpoint to that. We have to say, all right, here are the cautionary tales, here are the scary futures, and then here are the things we could point our compass toward, that this is something that makes the struggle worth it. You know, a lot of sci-fi focuses on the revolution, you know, the big catalytic change that happens in a society or a place and the, the fallout of that. Those are important stories to tell. I think it's also important to show what happens after the struggle, what happens after the crisis. What is it that makes the fight to get through that difficult time worth it? Because survival for survival's sake alone isn't enough. You need to know what sort of future it is you're working toward. Even if it's not a future for you, it may be a future for the next generation or generations after that. If we don't think that a better world is possible, we're never going to get out of the mire that we're currently stuck in. Yeah, great to hear you talk about that. And yeah, it's it's not only about surviving. Is it possible that we could also thrive uh, to actually mm-hmm. have a future that we want to look forward to? Yeah, sometimes the the fears do kind of dominate, particularly in the, the sci-fi genre at the moment. Um, and on that thread, what are some of the challenges of writing stories of hope at a time when many of us are looking to the future with despair? I find that the angrier I get, or the more afraid I get of the situation, situations plural that we're in, because, you know, pick pick a catastrophe, any catastrophe, the, the more upset I get about those things, I find the gentler I write, because I, I tend to tell the stories that I need to hear. The The, the key distinction here is I, I, I don't look at my work as purely optimistic, putting on rose-colored glasses, saying, don't worry, everything's going to be all right. Those aren't the worlds that I create. I do focus on the hard things and the unfair things, um, the things that uh, are painful and um, worth grieving. But I always also take the time to show that life goes on after that. We always find a way to patch things up. As I'm sure you know in your work, that is that is uh, true of, of human history and indeed the history of life in general. You know, there, there are catastrophes, there are t- times when everything collapses, but yet we continue. The world may not be the same, but we continue. That's, that's the thing I hang on to when everything outside is getting bleak. I actually take a lot of comfort in looking backward, um, even though my work focuses on looking forward. But history, anthropology, these are areas that, you know, as an amateur, I'm, I'm keenly interested in. Yeah, well, I definitely want to talk to you about the past, of course, with my my background being archaeology and, and pretty much all of my research being centered in the past. It's uncommon for sci-fi to really place a lot of importance on the past, but it really strikes me that in your stories about the future, the past is extremely present. The past is very tangible. So how would you describe the role that the past plays in your world? I think that, and I believe this in the real world as well, to forget the past is um, one of the biggest mistakes that you can make. Because if you don't learn about the world as it was before, you know, it's, it's the old cliche about how you're doomed to repeat the same mistakes. They are places with a history that, you know, I am not just 
pretending that like, aha, this, this culture sprung up in the moment exactly as it is. They always have a past. They always have a history. They have ruins. They have museums. And to me, that's just part of a healthy society. Museums, but also generally more places for remembering, appear in almost all of the books in your Wayfarers series, which I love. And in the final book of that series, an, an adolescent alien called Tupo has even created a homemade natural history museum, um, <laughs> yes. which I love. Museums are a huge, were, were a huge part of my, my childhood and adolescence. And still, anytime I'm, I am somewhere other than home, that's one of the first things I look up. You know, first is restaurants and second is museums. You know, I lived at the, the Los Angeles Natural History Museum when I was a kid. Uh, also the, the Huntington Library, the Getty Museum. Those were the places I always wanted to go over the summer. And my my mom was always more than happy to to let me wander around and look at the past all day. To me, they feel almost like sacred ground, honestly. I have so much respect for archival work, for curatorial work. It almost goes without a ton of conscious thought that I put places like that in my work because I can't imagine life without those places. And even if it's not a formal museum, if it's some sort of shrine or memorial or even just, you know, something like, you know, an old grove patch of forest is something that for me in the real world has that, it strikes that same chord as this is a place that belongs to the past, but is something that I can stand in now. I can, you know, look at that artifact or I can reach out and touch that tree and I am time traveling. I loved time travel stories as a kid and I still do. Yeah, that sense of wonder is very special and I guess that's one of the things that makes me appreciate getting to do outreach kind of things with kids as well is you can sit down with them and go, look at how amazing this is. Isn't this cool? Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean because that that is also a, a big driving force in um and why I write what I write. Science fiction, of course, depending on the work, I, I will play fast and loose with, with the rules of the universe. <laughs> you know, your job is to say, you know, here are the facts. Look how neat this is. <laughs> like, look at these amazing <laughs> things that we have learned. I see my job as um, something more akin to impressionism in that I am not necessarily telling you exactly how something works. I am probably riffing off of something in the real world, but, you know, I'm taking a flight of fancy with it. You know, I'm trying to communicate to you how it feels, how how I feel when I look at a tree that's 1,500 years old, how I feel when I look at an ancient hominid skull or, you know, read about a fungus that's the size of, you know, a small town, like that I am trying to take that feeling that arises in me when I look at the facts that folks like yourself dig, literally dig up and tell a story about that feeling. So you explore some of the relationships that people have with nature and technology across all of your books, really. So I'm really interested, obviously, in that with my work, particularly how people have kind of combined nature and technology through shaping environments with fire. How do you think our relationships with nature and tech influence our sense of self? Oh, uh, immeasurably is the the short answer. I think that viewing humans as something separate from nature, separate from the environment, is exactly what is causing so many of the the massive global issues uh, that we are facing today. But I I think there is a tendency to say that technology is bad. It's the fault of technology. But as as you point out, fire is technology, 
right? A stick that you use to get ants out of an anthill is technology. Baking bread is technology. So it's it's not so much a matter of tools and the things that create. It's about our mindset. There is nothing inherently wrong with a computer. There is nothing inherently wrong with electricity, an airplane, or any of these things. The problem is that we've artificially divorced ourselves from our place in the the web of life around us to the point that the tools we're making are killing us. But that's not because tech itself is bad. It's about how we use it. It's about how we implement it. Uh, A fire can also be dangerous, right? It's all about having the, the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding of how it is affecting both the people and the the creatures and the space around you that enables you to use it safely. And so I I do my best, especially in my monk and robot books, to not not make enemies of nature and technology because I I really do think that with the the right shift in mindset, these things can exist harmoniously and indeed have for as long as as we homo sapiens have been making tools. Sometimes we we can be a bit fearful, I guess, of the technology we may make. And in so in Monk and Robot, you kind of play with this a bit. So robots in this, this series were created as tools for humans and they become sentient and the humans give the robots a choice about what they want to do next. So rather than falling into a very common sci-fi trope of these robots being evil or killer robots taking over, your robots go in a very different way. Want to tell us about that? Absolutely. So the uh, the robots uh, in, in Monk and Robot all gain sentience en masse. Nobody knows why. It's a huge mystery. Uh, as you said, the human society that said robots exist in gave them the offer of becoming full citizens alongside people and to, to help them rebuild the world together. And instead, the robots said no politely, but they, they declined <laughs> and said they were more interested in seeing a world outside of human design because all they had ever known was factories. All they had ever known was the tasks that humans had given them. They wanted to know what the rest of the world was like. And so they all wandered off into the wilderness uh, to observe nature together. You know, I, first of all, I don't think it inevitable that, um, you know, we're going to end up in, in a, a human robot war. We are we are very good at anthropomorphizing our machines. I don't think it's a, as big of a danger as we think it is. I am way more affectionate toward my Roomba than is probably reasonable. <laughs> but also, I think there is an inherent arrogance in saying that artificial intelligence, androids, any, you know, pick pick a flavor of of talking thinking machine to say that their their ultimate aspiration is to be human. This is a very, very common sort of story we see anytime robots arise that they are they are striving to be more human, uh, to which I say, why? Why can't the robots be happy being robots? You know, why can't that be not just a satisfying existence, but an affirming existence for them? You know, I, I think that no matter whether you're talking robots or aliens to say that, oh, you know, we we are the pinnacle of all things is just a, a concept I would I would love to just uh, throw in the trash. So I play with that a lot in Monk and Robot, not just in the, the the history of the world, but also in the relationship between Dex and Mosscap, in which Dex really does come to understand that Mosscap takes pride 
in being a machine and being an object and that it does not like being compared to people or to animals because it is, it's none of those things. Um, this is an identity that is very important to Moscap, but doesn't make it any less worthy of respect or, or of being considered an equal. This too is reflective of just how I, how I see my place in the world around me. I think a lot about my non-human neighbors, um, the plants and animals that live around me. You know, they, they are all worthy of, of respect and pursuing their own lives as they see fit. So uh, it, it only tracks that, that robots should be allowed to do the same as well. Your robots are also really respectful and interested as well in, in other kinds of nature, whether it's humans or, or anything else, and spend a lot of time really observing nature, whether it's spending a couple of decades watching stalagmites form uh, or, or inspecting fun- fungi and plants. So why did you make your robots scientists? I, I think I wanted to make them curious. And I mean, that's that's what all scientists are, right? Like, I don't need to tell you that. Like, <laughs> curiosity is, is the trait that that drives all of that. They are, the robots in, in, in that series are just perpetually fascinated with the world as it exists. And I think to me, that was just um, me putting a little bit of myself into, into the robots. You know, I, I would love it if I had the, the patience and physical ability to sit and watch stalagmites <laughs> form or to, you know, to, to just take a stroll one day down to the, you know, the bottom of the ocean and look at the rays swimming around. That'd be fantastic. And I think that the robots are definitely observational scientists, right? They're not doing experiments. They're not doing field work. They're just sitting there watching a thing and figuring out how it works. And that's one of my favorite things to do as well. You know, I spend, I live up in the Redwoods uh, in Northern California. And so I spend a lot of time, um, you know, looking at rotting logs and slime molds and all the, all the weird things that are right out my, my back door. And so it was just a very, a very easy sort of experience for me to copy paste onto an entire cadre of robots. I envy them having the time to sit there for for decades just to watch one natural process. That's that's something that we we lack. Yeah, we. <laughs> I would love that patience, and uh, mm. no, I can barely sit still for ten minutes. So <laughs> I, I also had to laugh. Uh, there's a scene in a psalm for the wild built where Moscap the robot picks up this really ancient book that falls apart in its hands, and the narration describes a hypothetical archaeologist out there somewhere screaming. (laughs) (laughs) So I I had to wonder as well, if I was an archaeologist in this world of monk and robot, what traces would I actually have there to work with? Because the earlier industrial factory age is represented by, you know, metal and plastic and concrete ruins. But Dex's society kind of uses more recyclable and biological based materials that probably wouldn't leave very much of a trace for archaeologists to find. That is an excellent question. Um, you're right. I mean, and, and that is by design in their society, right? Like even the buildings decompose. You know, I have to imagine that there are people within the society in these books who have thought about this, who have thought about the fact that, hey, we're not leaving anything behind for other people to look at. So whether that be uh, something digital, whether they have, I don't know, maybe they're actually etching some sort of high-tech tablets um, for for people to (laughs) be able to look at later. I I firmly believe that there is, that they are doing their best to future-proof the knowledge of their society, even though the ruins of it will be gone, um, you know, once 
once their community has has disappeared as well. I guess the absence of a, a massive footprint in itself is telling about the society. So, you know, even if when we're not finding, you know, we weren't finding big ruins, that tells you something about the society itself. So the, the absence is still a trace of a kind. That's a, that's a fascinating way of looking at it that I hadn't considered before, but you're absolutely right. If you, if you dig down and you are finding metal and plastic trash uh, in huge quantities, and then all of a sudden it's gone, but you're still finding, a, you know, human remains um, and little bits and pieces that you're right, that does um, highlight an enormous shift in the society that fall, like you can't look at that and not see that that something massive has changed. Hopefully I may have convinced you in maybe one of your future stories to include an archaeologist. (laughs) (laughs) I I think you've made a solid case for it, yes. (laughs) Good, good. That's my goal. The society uh, on the moon of Panga in uh, Monk and Robot is a really great example of how the evolution of society, culture and technology doesn't have to be linear. So it's often really tempting to think of everything as a straight line from less complex to more complex from the past to the present and to describe it as progress uh, with complexity being seen as somehow superior. So, of course, nothing is that simple. And the society uh, in Monk and Robot is a really great example of how social, cultural and technological change doesn't have to be a line and it definitely isn't a line. Is that what you had in mind? And how do you reflect on this relationship between human society and tech development in your writing? That's absolutely what I had in mind. And that too comes from um, me looking backward before I can write about moving forward, right? Um, I don't see a straight line. I wanted to show there are lots of different communities there. They use technology differently and they use it in concert with the different environments and microclimates that they live within. Some places, a high-tech solution is not just appropriate, but ideal. Other places, something very, very low-tech is the approach that works best for the people who live there. And then you have people like Sibling Dex who live somewhere in the middle. You know, um, They're traveling the world in a, in a wooden wagon that they drag around with a bike. Um, these are not uh, what we would consider uh, particularly futuristic technology, but but they're also traveling around with a robot and they have a pocket computer and they have, you know, solar paint on everything. You know, you can use a blend of things. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to look at things with the terms I've just used, high tech and low tech. It's all just tech and a matter of choosing the right tool for not just for the job, but for the environment that you're using it within. I think that that saying it either has to all be the super shiny Apple store future or the, um, you know, the very grim digging through trash uh, post-apocalyptic dystopian future. Those are two extremes, right? I think that in reality, um, a more sustainable solution is going to be found somewhere in the middle using disciplines and knowledge from lots of different fields. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to be one of those extremes. Sometimes we can really get stuck in those ideas of progress and see the way technology is going and, you know, not necessarily like where it's going, but feel like we we have no other choice, that we're stuck heading inexorably forward forever, um, whether we like it or not. So, yeah, I, I really appreciate seeing those alternatives to make people think, no, we, we have a choice and we can go any way we want. Yeah, we, we always, always have a choice. Absolutely. And I know that that can feel untrue 
at times when, when we as individuals are facing these massive societal problems, um, you know, especially when they are created by governments or corporations or things that are so much bigger than we are. It's very easy to look at that and say, well, I can do nothing. Um, but it's first step is to remember that we are none of us alone. And no, we, we get to decide. We created those things as well. Um, just acknowledging that we have that power and that that power is stronger when we all, you know, hold on to each other and link arms together. That is the first step to, to any sort of positive change. Becky Chambers, thank you so much for talking to me today. And thank you for helping us imagine futures that aren't completely separated from our past, but also aren't limited by it. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you for having me. This has been a delight. And um, thank you for all the work that you do and, and helping us to to understand where it is that we come from, um, because otherwise we, we won't be able to imagine where it is we're going. Oh, what a wonderful conversation. Becky Chambers, 2022 Hugo Award-winning science fiction author. Check out her Wayfarer series and her Monk and Robot series. And archaeologist Dr Emma Wren from James Cook University who does work on ancient fires in Australia. She was one of the ABC's top five science media residents. So great to have you with us, Emma. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Tell your friends about the Science Friction podcast. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.